I love all the songs they played this morning, um, especially uh, Sweet Comfort. Man, it's like everything in me not to weep when I hear that song. Um, so thank you guys. Um, I'm AK, um, the pastor of youth and family ministry here at Hope, and um, occasionally I do get the, the pleasure of, of preaching. So welcome, and if I haven't met you, I'd love to, I'd love to get a chance to get to know you and meet you. Um, so this morning we are con- continuing in our study through the book of Mark. Um, and last week, where we left off was Jesus calling his disciples to be fishers of men. And we see them up and leave everything to follow Jesus. And immediately after that, Jesus and his fresh followers, they go to Capernaum, and we get this day in the life of Jesus. It's a Sabbath, and he enters the temple. He teaches at the local synagogue, and everyone is astonished with his teaching. Then he proceeds to cast out unclean spirits. His kingly authority is on full display as he teaches with an original and authentic authority. And there's something different and attractive about the way he's teaching and healing. And that brings us to our text today. You can follow along behind me or read in your bulletin. So starting in Mark 1, verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they brought him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him. And when they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. And he, Jesus, went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Father, for your word, um, for stories like these. Would you help me as I preach this morning? Would you, would you soften our hearts this morning? Would you calm us, um, give us deep peace and an awareness that you are near to us? Would you give us ears to hear this morning, eyes to see? And in you doing that, would you become more beautiful and believable this morning? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. So I recently finished watching uh, this TV show called The Bear that's on Hulu. I'd heard a lot about it. Friends had watched it. Um, I'd heard it mentioned in a couple of sermons, um, and so I finally had the chance to watch it, and I was immediately sucked in. The whole premise of the show is about this James Beard award-winning chef who, um, his name's Carmen Brazado, they call him Bear or Carmi, um, and he's made a, a name for himself at one of the top restaurants in New York, but after his brother's untimely death, he moves back to Chicago and he takes over his brother's restaurant. 
and the restaurant, it's run down, it's in financial trouble. Toilet pipes are bursting. Occasional bullets fly through the window. So you kind of get this like, there's panic, there are demands, it's urgent. Um, and that's what you feel as you watch the show, this, this urgency. Um, and it's coming from the situation that he stepped into, but it's also just the urgency of working in a kitchen. Um, they're always demands just always coming at them and they're trying to keep up. There's also demands from the other employees and just the, the life that he is adjusting to with life without his brother. And you see moments where Carmi, he, he feels these demands, these urgencies, and he, he gives in and he yells and somehow things seem to get worse. He struggles to sleep at night. He has nightmares um, that are stirred up from the past pressures of, of just being a, a chef in, a, um, in an award-winning restaurant in New York City, but he also has these pressures of the present circumstances that he's in. And you also, you see this adrenaline that I bet many of us probably feel in the own work environment where when we are, we feel the demands, we feel the pressure, we kind of get sucked in and it's almost this cycle of like these demands that are calling for us all the time. Um, and it can be just this cyclical of like feeling like I need to keep up and that's what will make me enough. And there's this one scene from this, the first season where he's at his old job in this spotless Michelin star kitchen and he's plating this beautiful white uh, dish and his boss, the top chef, is leaning over his shoulders whispering in his ear, you're terrible at this. You're no good at it. You're not tough. You are talentless. And Carmi just responds with, Yes, chef. And there's so much about that scene that captures this reality of what it can be like when the urgency, the demands, and success take hold of us. The ongoing narrative that can go on inside our own heads can be similar to this boss chef leaning over our shoulder, whispering the same things to ourselves. You're not doing enough. You'll never be enough. You're terrible at your job. You'll never measure up. You're a terrible dad. You're a terrible mom. You're a terrible daughter. You're a terrible son. And I start with this story because we get this Beautiful account from Mark of urgency and demands that are placed on Jesus. And we see him, he enters in. Yet we also see him not simply giving in to the demands of people, yet he, he retreats to be with his father. And he stays on mission with why he came in the first place. So Mark continues with this quick pace and action-packed gospel. After teaching in the synagogue, Jesus and some of his disciples, they head back to Simon Peter and Andrew's house. And Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. Then as the Sabbath day comes to an end, people start to flood into Simon Peter and Andrew's house. 
And Mark tells us that the whole town was assembled at the door. And we see Jesus. He heals those with sickness, those that are possessed by demons. And the disciples in the whole town have a front row seat to the kingdom moving forward. Jesus is bringing restoration, healing, and hope. And I imagine there was a buzz about the town and people were so excited with what Jesus was doing and what, they could, what Jesus could do for them. Yet what we see Jesus do next seems a bit strange. After this night, packed with healing, casting out demons, and bringing restoration, he wakes up early before the sun rises. He leaves town for a deserted place. And the whole... Um, the word that's used for deserted there, it's going back to the beginning of earlier in this chapter where it says that Jesus was tested in the wilderness, but this time what we see Jesus doing as he retreats this time, he's not going to be tempted in the wilderness. He's going to spend time with his father. He's going to commune and pray with him. And despite the demands, the urgent request for Jesus's healing power and while there were so many reasons for him to remain in the city, he leaves. And we get a sense of these demands as Simon and those with him go out searching for him, and they, they tell Jesus, they say, everyone is looking for you. And here Jesus is pushing up against what others and his own disciples were expecting from him. I'm sure there was probably some frustration and confusion with what was even going on, and yet this gives us a glimpse into the heart of King Jesus and his own humanity. When the demands were present and the urgent requests were loud, he sneaks away to be with his Father. And here we see Jesus being a different kind of king. I'm sure the disciples were thinking, we've got a good thing going. Jesus is, is growing in status and status and we get to be a part of this. We get to be uh, just watching him do his thing. And yet he retreats. Why does he do this? Well, the gospel of John gives us some insight there as we see with some of the way that Jesus describes his own relationship with God his Father. He says, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. And then in John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. And then John 12.49, For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. See, Jesus' identity and purpose is rooted and grounded in the Father. What he does comes directly from him and him spending time, intimate time with him. And Jesus perfectly models this for us. The perfect son of God, he needed to be alone with the father to be reminded who he was. And we need the same thing. Yet when I feel the demands and the present urgent needs of being a dad, of being in ministry, my natural instinct isn't to retreat to be with the Father, to allow Him to remind me who I am, for me to find my identity and rest in Him. What I want to do is I want to prove that I am competent, 
And I want to meet every demand that is thrown at me. I don't want to disappoint. I want to impress. And now making it personal, how do you respond to demands that are constantly thrown at you? When work ramps up, or maybe it just always seems to be consuming. When life is overwhelming, when the demands of parenting are exhausting, when the needs and demands are so loud, what do you do? And we are always connected. We're always accessible. And it can be hard just with that accessibility just to even be present in the moment. And here is one of all the invitations we see in this passage this morning that Jesus is modeling perfectly for us. When the demands and needs for Jesus were high, he snuck away to be with the Father. Henry Nouwen provides some helpful insight with what it means to be alone with the Father, as he explains in his article, Moving from Solitude to Community and to Ministry. He writes, Why is it so important that you are with God and God alone on the mountaintop? It's important because it's the place in which you can listen to the voice of the one who calls you the beloved. To pray is to listen to the one who calls you my beloved daughter, my beloved son, my beloved child. To pray is to let that voice speak to the center of your being, to your guts, and to let that voice resound in your whole being. Who am I? I am the beloved. So I'm, I'm in a life stage where it's pretty difficult to find time to sit with Jesus with, with two young kids and um, in my job. Even when I wake up early, our son can wake up earlier than me <laughs> or while I'm trying to sit and get some time uh, to rest. And I know that many of us sitting in this room, we feel that. We're busier, we're busier than we've ever been, especially probably coming out of COVID. You felt this sense of, of stillness but then everything is just ramped back up again. The demands of job, of parenting, and scheduling, and all that. And over the past year, I've benefited from the wisdom of Paul Miller, specifically in his book, A Praying Life. And in approaching time, sitting with God in prayer, what he invites us to do is just to take baby steps. For us to start, even small, say five minutes, and um, and as we spend that, a little bit of time, I think a desire grows in us and, and even creates this desire for us to want to spend more time with him. But I know that the reality is there are going to be days where, yeah, that might come pretty easy. Um, and there'll be days where that feels impossible. Um, but I think one of the things, and we've been talking about this a lot in our community group, is we're all in the same life stage and we just feel more constrained than we've ever felt because of just the life stage of having young kids and working. Um, but don't let it be the guilt be what drives us to him. What I want and what I try to remind myself of is that I need to be reminded how deeply loved I am. I need to be reminded of who I am in light of his son Jesus. And jumping back into the, the passage, one of the questions that we even talked about this week as pastors that, that comes up as we look at this passage is, okay, Jesus kind of, he moves on. He moves away. He heals people. There's still people left to be healed, but he goes on to the next city. 
And he, it doesn't say that he goes on healing, which we know that he does, but he goes on to do his main mission. He goes on to preach the good news of the gospel. And so that kind of leaves us with, why does Jesus heal some, and why does he choose to not heal others? And this is a serious question. I've had friends that, that I worked with at Christian camps and close friends that have walked away from the Lord because God didn't answer a prayer. God didn't heal a sibling, a parent, um, or take away some form of, of suffering. Um, and trying to answer this, this question, it can feel daunting and even confusing. Um, and I will say there is a bit of a mystery to it, but so much of Scripture is about suffering. And, and Paul does offer us some insight uh, when he describes how he prayed for God to remove a struggle from him. In 2 Corinthians 12, he writes, Therefore, so, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And see, what we see Paul doing here is the suffering, the, the pain, the weakness that he is, is feeling, and that's present in his life, actually pushes him to a greater dependence on God. But sometimes I think this verse can be used just to say, okay, suffering is inevitable, um, so you just need to lean on Jesus more. But what we see Paul modeling for us is not just being like, okay, this is part of the Christian life, I'm just going to suffer. No, what he does is he pleads with God. He gets in a wrestling match, in a sense, with God to take it away from him. And then over time, God reveals himself to him and gives him a glimpse, not every reason why he's suffering, but he gives him some of the purpose behind it. And even thinking about God's people, they're named Israel. That name comes from Jacob wrestling with God. And so the people of God's identity are people that wrestle with him. And so that's what I think and what I want us to think about when we're experiencing some form of suffering, what would it look like for you to wrestle with God in that? And there's confusion that comes along with that. All your questions won't be answered. And I think we even see, as I've mentioned earlier, some of Jesus' actions, they are confusing. Why is Jesus retreating when there is so much good to be done? Why is Jesus not doing what we expect from him, what we want him to do for us? see, Jesus has come, and we see this here, not to be the king that we want him to be, not to be the king that the disciples want him to be, but he comes to be the king that we need him to be. And we can trust him even when he's not doing what we want him to do. We can trust Jesus even when he is confusing. And I'm sure Peter felt confused as he's probably frantically searching for Jesus, and then he finally finds him, and it's as if Jesus doesn't even, like, acknowledge what Peter says. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't correct him. Peter, he just looks at him, 
and he says, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. <laughs> this is why I have come. There's almost this like comical sense to it of, of like Jesus just so focused in prayer and Peter interrupts and he's like, let's go on. The needs are high, but I need to continue on my mission. I need to continue to preach the good news. And when you think about Jesus preaching, what, what comes to mind for you? Just imagine, what would it have been like to be in the room and hear Jesus preaching? What are the words you think he's saying? You think he's just giving a bunch of rules, telling you how you're supposed to be living, telling you all the ways that you're messing up. Well, earlier in this chapter, it tells us that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, and it tells us that Jesus said these words. He said, a time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He went from town to town proclaiming this message, that the long-awaited king had arrived and he was what they were waiting for. And yes, he was coming to heal and restore this broken world that we're living in, yet him preaching this message that he was a long-awaited king, that's what he came to do. He came saying, stop looking to other things or your own ability and strength to heal yourself. Look to me. I'm the long-awaited king. And because of this good news, he's the one that Yes, he's saving broken humanity. He's healing externally. He's healing, but also internally. He's healing and restoring. And he's showing us what it looks like to have, to be in relationship with the Father. And ultimately, he's coming to give us eternal life. John 17, and Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, that they may know God that we may know God, the only true God and the one who has sent me. So Jesus comes that we would know the Father. See, that and the gospel, they're all entangled with each other. And one of the things that we get the benefit of, of having the entire New Testament, is we get to see the full implications of what this good news means in our lives. Paul explains in, in Romans 3, how we, when we place our faith in Jesus, we are justified. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And God presented him, Jesus, as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. And because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed, and God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and justify the one whose faith is in Jesus. That chapter is theologically packed. Essentially what it's saying is that we are all sinners in need of God's grace, and that we are justified through Jesus' death. He's talking about justification, that through trusting Jesus, we're made right. An author that I've gravitated to over the past couple years is, is David Zalls, and in his book, Seculosity, 
he gives us a little bit more understanding of the word justification, because that's not really a word we use often. He uses the word enoughness. He even goes on to describe religion as this idea of enoughness. He says, our religion is that which we rely on, not just for meaning or hope, but enoughness. And he goes on to explain this world of enoughness that we are swimming in. He writes, listen carefully and you'll hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. And so when we're living in this place of looking to the world to be enough, thinking that it's right on the other side of this accomplishment, this approval, this success, ultimately, at some point, it leaves us disappointed, burned out, and feeling like we're not enough. It takes us back to the scene that I started us with, Carmi in the kitchen, chef leaning over his shoulder, you're not enough, you're talentless, you're worthless. But the beauty of the gospel, the good news that Jesus preached is that we get to come with, to him with open hands, with our lack of sufficiency, with our not enoughness, and we receive enoughness that we, that enoughness that we are longing for in him. See, in Christ, we are more than enough. We are his beloved children. And so, I wanted to make the last point, remembering his mission, because I think so much of what this Christian life is all about is us remembering, remembering the gospel, remembering who we are in light of that, and remembering what it means to live as a child of God. Yet I know that it's so easy for all of those voices to be so loud that are screaming you're not enough, so we're going to look to these other things that are right in front of us that we're actively doing, and hopefully there we'll be able to feel enough in them. But I want to take us back to earlier in Mark, in Mark 11, when Jesus is baptized, we see this beautiful scene of where Mark writes that the heavens were torn open, and God's booming voice comes down over Jesus, and God says, you are my beloved son, with you, I am well pleased. And again, Henry Nouwen, I want to go back to that quote that I quoted earlier. Who am I? I am the beloved. That's the voice Jesus heard when he came out of the Jordan River. You are my beloved, on you my favor rests. And Jesus says to you and to me that you are the are loved as he is loved. 
that same voice is there for you. When you are not claiming that voice, you cannot walk freely in this world. Jesus listened to that voice all the time, and he was able to walk right through life. People were applauding him, laughing at him, praising him and rejecting him, calling him Hosanna and calling crucify. But in the midst of that, Jesus knew one thing. I am the beloved. I am God's favorite one. And he clung to that voice. So, so much of the Christian life is about us hearing that truth, learning it, relearning it, letting it just sink into the core of who we are, and then relearning it again. That we are his beloved, that he delights in us and wants us to come to him. That he loved us so much that he sent his son to suffer, experience the torture of an agonizing death, the wrath of God, the separation from his father, all to heal and restore us to restore the, the needy and the broken, the overwhelmed, those that feel the demands and urgency of this life. And he invites us to come and spend time with him, to come and commune with him. And we, we do this not to earn our enoughness, not to earn our justification, but we come to him to receive it, to be reminded who we are in Christ, that we are his beloved children. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you um, for this passage and um, just the way Jesus does model what it looks like to go and be with you. Um, thank you for the good news that um, we can do nothing to save ourselves, um, but that salvation is found in you and you alone. I pray, Father, that we could be rooted and grounded knowing that we are your beloved. I pray this in your name. Amen. And so with all that in mind, that's what brings us to this table, this communion table, this Lord's Supper, where we are reminded that Christ is better, to be reminded of how much God loves us by sending his Son into the world to die for us, to rescue us all so that we could become his beloved children. This table is for all those that have placed their faith in Jesus. It's for those that struggle and doubt, but know that they cannot save themselves. Um, those that are aware of their dire need of God's grace, and it's for those that are stumbling and fumbling as they depend on Jesus' righteousness. Those that are stumbling and fumbling as they look to Jesus for the, his wisdom rather than their own. And so if that is you, then this table is for you. Come. But there is a warning that comes with communion. It's only a table for those who belong to Jesus. And if you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, we ask that you remain seated and participate through prayer and meditation. We don't want you to fake it. Don't violate your conscience by doing something you don't believe. Um, and there are some prayers printed inside uh, the bulletin, and you can use those to guide your time in prayer. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and this week we have crackers. 
He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he gave it to the disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And because this meal is a meal of communion, we ask that... um, you come down, take the elements and go back to your seat and then we, we partake of it together. Um, and we find it easiest if you come down the center aisle and then go back to your seat on the outer aisle. And then one other, I, I want to make sure I get this right, the eight cups in the middle are wine and the gluten-free option is the one with a little um, stale, um, bland wafer that's right on top. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to pray for us, but if the elders could go ahead and come forward, um, let me pray. Father, thank you for the way that you love us, um, for the reminders you give that, um, that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. Um, Father, I pray um, that as we um, take these elements, that they would serve as a reminder of who you are and whose we are. Um, Thank you for the the tangibleness of even just being in this room with other believers, that we are not alone, and that we get to do life with one another. Um, And thank you for the tangible reminder of these elements of your body and blood, um, reminders of of you, what great lengths you went to to rescue us. And now I pray that um, you would use these ordinary elements. I pray that you would set them apart aside for your extraordinary use. I pray this in your name. Amen. Come forward as you feel led.